All right, well, the continued title for tonight's service is We Exhort You. And we're on our fifth installment of this passage here that we've been working through in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, we have commented numerous times, but if anyone is new here, this word exhort, it talks about just encouraging. We encourage, we entreat, we urge you. It's translated, I've mentioned previously, as we beg you. We have this deep concern for you, and our deep concern for you translates to this desire that you would heed God's blueprint and plans for your life and his instruction for your spiritual well-being. It all has this parental mindset of God being for us, never against us, always wanting us to thrive spiritually, to live life with him in a way that would best benefit us or most benefit us and bring him the most glory. And so those two purposes for our good and for his glory, those are always the two things that shape God's interactions and direction for our Lives. So Paul, as a spokesperson for God himself, as God's truth was revealed through human instruments, as God breathed, he inspired every word of Scripture to be written then by mankind, but ultimately it came from him and it was intended to give us direction in our lives. So when you're thinking about exhortations, we have this list of 15 exhortations to wind out the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we find them at the end of the fifth chapter here. Now, as we've been working through this list of imperatives, these are things that are, again, being pleaded or encouraged in your life because these are the things that are critical to you experiencing the spiritual well-being or health that God intended for you to experience. And so they're written with this very definitive type of flavor to them of present active imperatives. Almost all of them are present active imperatives. And there's 15 of them, and you think, why so many? And the reason being that there's a lot of ways we can get off track in our Christian lives. Any one of these things could be applying or useful to you tonight, but all of them cumulatively are necessary for you to know throughout the course of your Christian life or Christian experience that these are all things that God is giving to me by way of his all-knowing, perfect advice for my life, and they're instructions given that are intended to benefit me and produce the desired outcome that I would have a life that's described by dependence on him, a walk, into, a walk with him where I'm yielded and focused on allowing him to work and produce in my life a manner of living that is inconsistent with anything I would produce in my flesh or on my own. And so we've been working through this list. So far we've covered 11 of them and we're going to try to keep going and get 12, 13, and 14 here tonight, and then we'll, Lord willing, the next time we meet, we'll finish up this section. But let's read it together to refresh our thinking about some of these things that we've already covered and move into the part we want to cover tonight. Let's pick up in chapter 5, verse 14. Now, it's a variation of the same word you see there in verse 12, we urge you. Same kind of a concept as what we see there in verse 14, we exhort you. Who is it written to? Believers. Now, we exhort you, brethren, and then he's now going to give them some instructions for their lives that would, again, be beneficial. Warn those that are unruly, we looked at that. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, But always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. 
pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. So we have the two negative variations of imperatives there with the do not and the do not. Do not despise prophecies. That where we, that's where we ended two weeks ago, last time we were in this section. Verse 21 now for tonight, test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And we're going to end with brethren, pray for us. That will be the last imperative that we look at or exhortation in this series. So Lord willing, we'll get through these other three here tonight. Let's dig in a little bit, picking up where we left off in verse 21. So we start with test all things. So on the heels of warning these believers against quenching the spirit or despising prophecies, Paul now includes this general overarching instruction. And that instruction is to test all things. So do not quench the spirit. We talked about Allow the Spirit of God to perform His work or accomplish His purpose in your life. Do not hinder the Spirit's ability to work in you. There's an aspect of that dealing with the giftedness that God has given to each believer, different kinds of spiritual giftedness. But the bigger issue is the Spirit of God wants to lead and direct, empower and work in your life so that your life is a fulfillment of God's plan and purpose for you individually. Don't quench that. Don't throw water on that fire. And then do not despise prophecies. We summarize that is, do not have disdain or disregard for God's truth. Now, we knew that in that context, we did a whole message on that because prophecies we are, are not as familiar with in the sense of we don't look at it that way, that God is still prophesying through people. And we, we brought out that Bible-believing, grace-oriented, dispensational teachers have taken different views about what, if any, ongoing effect there is of the gift of prophecy today. We, the, the thing to have taken away from that is that God is not continuing to make new revelation through mankind. The canon of scripture is closed. His revelation to mankind is readily available in the form of his written word. It's available to us each and every day. God doesn't need to add anything to that. So if you take a more expansive view of what prophecy entails, that it could also include this sort of gift of of teaching or explanation of what God has already revealed, that is where the argument lies, and it wasn't a mountain that I felt like we need to die on. I personally have taken the view that that's, not, that's a different gift from that of a teacher. That's a different gift from that of a pastor. That's a, different, that's a different gift than what people are talking about in terms of understanding or teaching or explaining the Scripture. That's a separate, separate gift, and that this one is not necessarily for today. But do I, do we, did I take a dogmatic view on that? No, I didn't. And so then, on the heels of those two things, do not quench the Spirit's working in us and don't despise or disregard what God has revealed to us. I think that's the, more, that's the better application there anyway. That's the universal and timeless application there. God has revealed his truth to mankind. He didn't hide it from us. He, he said, I want you to know my truth. 
So the issue is never, does God desire you to know his truth? The issue is never, has he made it available to us? God has revealed his truth through his word. So those two parts of the equation are already set in stone. God wants you to understand his truth and he take heed to his truth. He wants you to know his truth and he's revealed that truth to us. There's no issue with that. The question is, do you want to know God's truth? Are you interested in God's truth? Will you put a high regard on God's truth? Will you respond to it as he's revealed it to you, knowing that he knows better than you do? That's the question I have to ask myself. That's the question that you have to ask yourself. Now, when you take a posture that says, in effect, I know better than God knows. Now, you're taking that posture when you're disregarding his model and his plan, his blueprint, his direction for your life. You're disregarding his revealed truth. That, in effect, is saying, I know more than God knows. I'm in a better position to direct my own paths than he is. And when that's your mentality, that's the equivalent of despising prophecy. Because God has revealed his truth. And he said, I want you to recognize your place in this, that without me you can do nothing. That until I made a way for you, you were hopeless and helpless and hellbound. That even now that you have put your place in my finished work on your behalf and you were born into my family, even then you are hopeless and helpless, though not hellbound anymore, but you're hopeless and helpless apart from complete dependence on me to do in and through you through the power of my spirit what you could never do for yourself in terms of Christian living. As we talk about second tense salvation, as we talk about that progressive sanctification or practical sanctification. And so while at a point in time we became fixed positionally in God's family and we were declared to be sanctified in that sense, set apart and holy, God says, you are now mine and I'll never let you go. But the question becomes, as we seek to live life, the Christian life, live it the way that he intends, are we going to do that from a posture of complete dependence on him? Well, it starts with admitting daily that God knows better than I know, that he's more capable of directing my life than I am. And to have that yielded dependence on him. That would then cause me to look to him. Why? Because I would have acknowledged that looking at my circumstances, looking at the horizontal plane, trying to plot out my own life is getting me nowhere. So that recognition would redirect my focus to him. As my focus came back to him, and I was looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, then his spirit would have the freedom to direct and work in my life in a way that he couldn't while I was resisting him or fighting him or preventing him from doing his will and work in me. And so there's a bunch there, I guess, but that's what we're talking about when we're talking about despising prophecies. That's our practical application of that truth, at least the principle to draw from verse 20. So now on the heels of those two negative instructions, do not do this, do not do this. Now it says, instead, as you're trying to determine your source of truth, remember prophecy is about truth. It's about don't despise or disregard God's truth. Now, these sources of truth came through people, though, before the canon of Scripture was completed. They didn't have the completed word of God at their fingertips. And so they had to rely on the teaching of others as the apostolic witness was utilized to communicate the teachings of Christ in addition to the revealed scriptures that were available, but the scriptures as 
it related to the early church was the Old Testament scriptures. Then God, some individuals, the apostles, they, some were taught directly by Jesus. They passed on that teaching from God himself to people, but in a more of a verbal way. Some of it started to be written down. You started to get the gospel accounts and those types of things. Then you started getting these letters as Paul was inspired by the Spirit of God to communicate additional revelation to these churches about this thing that had been a hidden mystery in the Old Testament, the function of the local church, church-age doctrines, the doctrines of grace, the, well, not the doctrines, like, it's not like you can't find it in the Old Testament, but expansion on the age of grace or the church age. So those things are all coming into being, but there's this coming through human form, coming from, from human beings aspect to it that is different than we can all come to this book when we want to have a conversation about what is true. We don't have to search far. You just break out your Bible and I break out your Bible and we say what? What saith the scripture? We have it in front of us. But so now this instruction on the heels of not despising God's truth, but it's, it's conditioned on questioning the source of that truth. So that's where we're getting this test all things. So test is defined as to examine, check out, Observe, look or carefully, look over carefully or inspect. I like personally to look over carefully, to consider carefully, maybe is the better way of thinking about that. So test all things. Now, all things relating back again to this revelation. The idea is to try to learn the genuineness of something by examination and testing. And all things continues Paul's pattern of definite language in these instructions. Look back as you look at this list of things and how definitive the language is of these imperatives. So when you come to verse 14, you'll say, uphold the weak. It says, be patient with all. There's no exceptions. Verse 15, see that no one, again, that's a definitive phrase, no one, there's no exceptions to it, renders evil to anyone, another all-encompassing word, but always another definite word with no wiggle room. Pursue what is good for yourselves and for all, another example of a definitive word. Rejoice always, no exceptions. Pray without ceasing, no exceptions. In everything, no exceptions. Give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus for you. So there's this language of definiteness in these instructions that are being communicated again with your best interest in mind. Now contextually, ascertaining the genuineness of spiritual giftedness is the focus. The Maybe a way to rephrase that would be, is the Spirit of God really behind what is being said or done? So on the heels of do not despise prophecies and do not quench the Spirit or spiritual giftedness or the outworking of the Spirit of God, there's that sense of testing now. Check out, observe, look over carefully, determine is what is being said and done the product or being produced by the Spirit of God? Is it genuine? Is it authentic? So Paul exhorts these believers to evaluate carefully what is said or done in the name of the Spirit or under the supposed influence of the Spirit. So if one says, the Spirit is leading me in this way. Do you just take that at face value? No, believers say that all the time. Now, sometimes I genuinely think they believe that God is leading them in a certain way. But I've experienced in my life people say that God directed me or God is leading me in this way as a way for them to justify or whitewash 
sanctify some sort of decision that's clearly not in alignment with obvious principles from the Word of God. Now, would the Spirit of God ever direct somebody in a way that is incompatible with the Word of God? And the answer is no. Now, does that mean that person's a liar? No. But we can be deceived, can't we? We can be confused, can't we? Perhaps you've been in that place where you so desperately had already prejudged a matter. You'd already made up your own mind about what you wanted. But because you come out to church, because you've grown up hearing about how you should bring these things to the Lord, you decide you're going to pray about it. But you're praying about it after the fact, after you've already determined in your own heart how you want something to turn out. Isn't it interesting that in that posture that your prayers or what you perceive as the answer to your prayer seems to align with your predetermined desire anyway? Ever happened before? We got one nod. One single person besides me has done that. I'm teasing. We, we know that we do that. We are fickle. We are easily deceived, self-deceived and deceived by the world around us, by the, the devil himself. So the reality is we do do that and can do that. So what Paul's advice here is just because somebody says the Spirit is leading me doesn't mean that we just accept that as being the case. Just because something is supposedly being influenced or being done in the name of God's Spirit, that in and of itself isn't enough. And so he says, test all things. As important as spiritual gifts were, Paul recognized that they could be abused and cause disorder in the church. And did that ever happen? Where spiritual gifts were being abused or being something was being purported as coming from the Spirit or being directed by the Spirit when it clearly was not? And the answer is yes. Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll show you at least two examples where we can observe that being the case. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're looking to start at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1. All right. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, again, writing to believers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols however you were led. Meaning, your judgment hasn't, you don't have a track record of always having had great judgment in terms of your spiritual sensitivities. So verse 3 he says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So one of the things you see in this passage here in verse 3 there is there were people who were denying the very nature, the person and work of Jesus Christ under the guise that the Spirit of God was directing them to speak in that manner. Now, would the Spirit of God ever direct anybody to speak in that way and call Jesus accursed? Never. But that's an example of how these believers were being influenced by false teaching and those that were claiming things to be true that were not true, but doing it by whitewashing it or wrapping it up 
as spiritual giftedness or revelation from the Spirit of God. You can see something similar in 1 John. We covered this as a church family not that long ago, but 1 John chapter 4. We got, there's three verses we could look at there. 1 John chapter 4. A similar scenario where John, so that was Paul there warning against that kind of thing, but here's John talking about it now too, another book that's written to believers. So if we remind ourselves of these first three verses of 1 John chapter 4, they say this, Beloved, again a reference to believers, do not believe every spirit. There's those claiming to be led by God's spirit, but you have to test that. So it says, but test the spirits, whether they are truly, we could insert that, truly of God, because many prophets, many false prophets, have gone out into the world. Now by this you know the spirit of God is involved. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So there's two influences there, potentially. Not in any situation. It could be the spirit of the one in opposition to Jesus Christ, Satan himself, That is denying the very person and work of Jesus. Same kind of an issue here. There was heavy criticism or skepticism or doubt being sown about whether Jesus was even the Son of God, whether he was deity. The number one thing under attack about Jesus wasn't that he had some insightful things to say. It wasn't that he even existed historically. The rejection came primarily down to the idea of was he the Son of God or not. That was the primary rejection as it related to the Jewish people, and that's the issue today. Just recognizing that Jesus is a historical figure is of no value to anybody. The question is, do you acknowledge that he was the unique God became man, the incarnate incarnate Son of God who came to earth to rescue sinners by dying in their place on a cross, being buried and rising again the third day to prove that he was who he said he was. That's ultimately the issue. But the, what I'm getting at here or why I brought you to those two passages is, is there, there the potential for those in the guise or under the name of being spirit-led or spirit-influenced to speak things that are not true? And the answer is yes. It can happen. Paul's warning then here, as again inspired by God's Spirit, is test all things, not some things. Test all things, especially as it relates to the proclamation of spiritual church truths in the context of the local or emerging local church. So that's the context here when you're talking to the Thessalonians. It's a it's a the early part of church history. You're you're having this dependence on people to speak on behalf of God. Additional revelation is taking place. The question has to be, does it line up? Does it meet the test? Does Does it pass the test? And so, as I look at it carefully and inspect it, does it stand up to scrutiny? So, due to the potential for abuse, Paul balances his exhortations that the manifestations of the Spirit should not be thwarted. There we have quenching the spirit or disdained by calling on his readers to test them. So those were the things. Don't quench the spirit. Don't disdain or ignore or disregard God's truth. But, so while you shouldn't do that, you should also, though, at the same time, be careful to test what you are hearing 
to determine whether it's authentic or genuine or not. Now, what does testing all things look like or involve? In this passage, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, test all things. Then he says, depending on the results of your testing, hold fast to what is good and abstain from what is evil. But he doesn't say how to test. He doesn't give any more detail about that. He declines to specify about what is the nature of that testing or the specifics of that testing. Now, some have postured that, postulated I think is the actual word I wanted there, that this is referring to those in the congregation that had a specific spiritual gift of discernment. And that gift of discernment was to then offset the gift of prophecy so that one would be there to, on the spot, give an opinion or to test or have uh, that discernment as a gift from the Spirit himself so that they could authenticate what was being said. And so that gift consisted of an ability to discern whether another prophetic spokesman had given a genuinely inspired utterance. That's how I understand that. You can find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, that gift. And I'll just read it to you for the sake of time. It says this, 1 Corinthians 12, 10. To another, the working of miracles. I just jumped right into a list where he was saying, to one this gift, to one this gift, to one this gift. Then in verse 10, he's saying, to another, the working of miracles, a gift, a sign gift in the early church, to another prophecy. Now there was a comma, and then to another, discerning of spirits. And he goes on with some more spiritual gifts. Showing the diversity, the point of the passage is to show that we're all one in Christ, but there's a diversity of gifts. We're not all the same. God uses different people in different ways and gives them different personalities and different giftedness, although for the edification or the lifting up of the body of believers, for the benefit of others. If a gift is making you front and center or putting the focus on you, that's not a a gift from God. God gifts people with the desire that it would benefit the body, not an individual or to put the focus on an individual. The goal of the Word of God is always to bring glory to Him. That's the chief aim of man is to bring God glory. And to do that, you'd have to have the spotlight on Him and not on yourself. Now, I don't believe that is the testing that Paul has in mind here. So that's sort of just a rabbit trail in the sense that some say that. So to test all things, they're saying rely on the other person in the congregation or people who are gifted with that ability to have that discernment, a special God-given spirit-equipped discernment that's different than the general discernment I'll talk about here in a second. I don't think that's what he's talking about because he doesn't address this to any one person. He addresses it to the whole congregation collectively. So when he talks about testing here, he's saying corporately, and he's writing this to all believers, he hasn't changed his focus or emphasis to any one person or any one gift. He's saying now everybody here, uh, when he says, I exhort you brethren, plural, all all of these exhortations are addressed then in plural to the entire corporate body of believers in Thessalonica. So when he says test all things, he's saying that to everybody. So I think that's the wrong interpretation. I think the right idea here is that the testing is theological in nature. It has to do with a proper view of Jesus and acceptance of his word. And so when you're thinking about the rejection 
that we just looked at as people could claim to have been directed by the Spirit of God but be speaking things that are false. In both of those examples, you'll note that it again had to do with a rejection of Jesus, first and foremost. Secondarily, if you reject him, then you reject his, his teaching. But in both that example in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 John 4, both instances, it was attacking the person of Jesus and then attacking his, his teaching as a secondary matter. So Paul, when he's saying test all things, he's saying test it in a theological sense. Paul expects his readers to weigh supposedly spirit-inspired words and deeds against something. And that is the doctrine that they had received from him and ultimately from God in addition to the scripture that they did have access to. So, the additions to the canon of Scripture or the revelation of God that were in, the, in process at that time, in addition to the already provided canon of Scripture or areas, parts of Scripture from the Old Testament, the teaching of Paul as he had relayed teaching from Christ to them and expanded on church-age teaching, those are the things that he expected them to use as the standard that they were going to judge other things Against, He wanted them to take these supposedly spirit-inspired words and compare them to, as, to the real thing or the genuine article. To say, does this contradict or interfere or conflict with this? And so, if on one hand we have the Word of God as available, the, the teaching that I've already given you from, from Jesus and then from me as inspired by God's Spirit, compare all of that to this supposedly spirit directed it could be words but it could also be deeds too that God is God is the one directing us in this way you could say is that true by comparing it to what is true and so that is what Paul is expecting and when we think about our day that's certainly the application to us from verse 21 here what does that involve if you're talking about testing all things and comparing it to a known standard? Well, it involves prayer and it involves thought. It involves thinking. God gave you a mind so that you could think. It involves weighing, considering, and comparing things. Comparing the things that are being said and done to the standard of truth, which is God's revealed truth. That's the testing all things, is to compare what is being proposed as being spirit-led, spirit-directed, spirit-influenced to what does God's word already reveal? And is this consistent with this? That's the, that's the ultimate idea there. They are to be gauged against a known and reliable standard of truth. And any primary means for testing, it always focuses on God's revealed truth. That is ultimately the final authority for determining truth and error. So turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 17. I want to show you Paul's praise, Paul and Silas's praise, for a group of individuals. Acts chapter 17. Because this is a practical application of, of this principle. Test all things. Test what you're hearing and you're seeing done to the standard. Hold it up to the standard. The standard being God's word. So Acts 17, verse 10, it says this, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now, they had 
in the context, they had been speaking God's truth to the different places they traveled. And there was one of two responses. Anytime God's word is preached, this is true even to our day, one of two possible responses can take place. There's either revival, where people respond, reorient their thinking and adjust their, their way of seeing things to God's standards, or there's rebellion or revolt. And, and in this instance, they were chased out of town, so they come to the next town, Berea. So they sent them by night. It was one of those kind of scurry out of town in the dead of night scenarios. And they came to this new place, Berea. Now when they arrived, they did what they did everywhere else. They went into the synagogue of the Jews. To the Jews first and also to the Greeks. So he went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these, the Jewish people in that synagogue in Berea, were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. The same place that we're talking about here in First Thessalonians chapter 5. The Jewish folks in Thessalonica were, drove Paul out of town. And so he came to this other group of Jewish people in the synagogue there who were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, meaning they were more open-minded to consider what was being said. Now in that, meaning this is what I mean by them being fair-minded, Paul's saying, in that, they received the word with all readiness. They were interested in it. And then what did they do? They searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Here we have Jewish individuals. Well, they, they could have been Jewish converts too. But you have the synagogue here in Berea. You have the Jews that Paul's coming to. They hear him out. They take in what he's saying, which he's saying as being led of the Lord. Remember, this is proclaiming or these truths that they're to test are, are being held up as if this is God's truth. So they're taking that in. This is God's truth, as Paul is saying, and they're comparing it with what? They're comparing it to the standard, the only standard, the scriptures. Now, what scriptures are those? Well, Old Testament scriptures, because that's what they had available to them with what objective in mind to determine whether these things were so. That's exactly what Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica that had, again, was the community, not, not the church community, but it was the same town where the Jewish folks had run them out of town. Riot. And so in that riot, they were raced out of town. And next town, though, kind of has the exact kind of an application of what Paul means by test all things. Now, I want you to note this, though. Were these individuals even believers? No. If you read on, you'll see that many of them did get saved. But in the context of them hearing something that's being held up as God's truth, their response, just even as religious-minded folks, spiritually oriented or spiritually interested folks, their response was to compare it to the Scripture. Now, could some of them have already been saved? Sure. But the passage says that many of them believed, and we know that that's how one is born into God's family. So, isn't that convicting? That here you have a group of people that hadn't even yet believed in Jesus Christ, and they were willing to hear something being purportedly presented as if it were God's truth and they were going to compare it to the scripture 
They didn't, it doesn't say they spent all of their time talking amongst each other as to whether or not what Paul had to say sounded good or not. They didn't, it doesn't say they spent all of their time looking at his resume and his credentials to find out, is this somebody who we should take as having some special insight into truth? It says they spent their time comparing what he was proclaiming or holding up as God's truth to the word of God, the standard of the scriptures. So I thought that was really interesting. You see, God never contradicts himself. God never changes. And if God is unchanging and he never contradicts himself, then that would be the way to test whether something is true or not. The Holy Spirit would never direct through a believer in a manner that's inconsistent with God's character or word. Never. So if somebody is purporting to be moving or acting on behalf of or as led by God's Spirit, but yet it's contrary to God's character or it's contrary to God's word, that person, that's not true. In that moment, that couldn't possibly be a Spirit-led outreach because the Spirit would never lead in that way. So then what's the main takeaway for you? The main takeaway for you and I is that the more truth you know, the better equipped you will be to identify error. The more truth you know, the better equipped you will be to identify error. Where are we going to learn that truth? We're going to learn that word truth from God's word. That's why we say, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's why learning God's word, studying God's word, putting a high value on God's word, hearing it taught, fellowshipping with other believers around God's word, that's critical to your success. The believer who has matured beyond using the milk of the word as a babe in Christ is able to then progressively over time discern both good and evil. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. I want to show you a statement to that exact effect. Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 12. Hebrews 5.12. The maturation process, growing in your understanding, you have to grow beyond just taking in milk, though, where you can take in the substance, more, things of more substan- substantial weight to them from God's word as you grow in your understanding. That's what's going to end up giving you more and more discernment to determine or test all things, as Paul is instructing here. Let's pick up in verse 12. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. He's saying to these believers, you become dull of hearing. Because you've become dull of hearing, thinking you know it all, this is all old news, I got no excitement for God's truth anymore. God isn't making any inroads into my thinking because I've got my thinking blocked off due to my hard-headedness, my stubbornness, my pride, my arrogance. God can't teach me anything. But you should have grown, but you're not. You need milk again, not solid food. But it says this, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. If all you ever take in is the basic principles, you never grow in your faith and your maturity, your ability to digest heavier, weightier things. 
you're always going to be immature in your faith. He's unskilled in the word of righteousness. Why? Because he's not able to take in something more. Verse 14, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age or mature. That is, those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You don't use it, you lose it. That's the idea there. If I'm not meditating on filling my mind with, renewing my mind with God's word and God's truth over and over again, I'm going to become ineffective at discerning good and evil. Why? Because it's having that sensitivity to God's spirits working in my life as he directs me time and time again back to his truth. As I want to live a life of intimacy with God himself, I'm going to want to hear what he has to say to me. There's not one single intimate relationship on the planet that thrives apart from from regular communication. So if your stated desire is to have closeness to the God of the universe, it's going to involve communicating with the God of the universe. That's going to involve including him in your thinking, including him in your day taking him with you to the places and spaces you go, but it's also going to include talking to him in prayer as one would talk to a friend, and it's also going to involve listening to what he wants to communicate back to you. The primary means of doing that, his word. So very powerful passage here as we're looking at testing all things. There's a lot there. Testing all things involves staying in the Word of God, growing in our understanding, growing in our faith, so that we can develop some maturity as the Spirit of God then provides us with some discernment. It doesn't come from within. It it doesn't come from us. I mean, it comes from within, I guess, in the sense that only God's Spirit can produce that discernment in us as He enlightens us and illuminates our eyes and understanding. But you're never going to prepare or equip yourself in that way. The way you're going to do it is by getting out of the way and making time for giving access to God in your life and in your thinking and not excluding him from your day-to-day activities. That's how it's going to happen. That's the only way that you're going to be able to test all things as Paul is getting at here. Now Paul is going to encourage two responses depending on the results of the testing. One is in verse 21 here, hold fast what is good. Hold fast what is good. So that's one alternative. So if the testing reveals that it's good, meaning it's from God, every good thing is from above. So if it's determined that it's good because it comes from him, then hold fast to that. Now what do we mean when we say hold fast? To stick to firmly. Stick to that like glue. Continue to believe. Practice and follow. Hold on to that what has been determined to be representative of God's truth. Hold on to that. Stick firmly to that. Now, this is in the present tense, so the instruction is to do that and keep on doing that for your success. It's also, like all of these imperatives, active voice, meaning God's not going to make you either, one, test all things, or two, if you determine that it's his truth, he's not going to make you cling to his truth or hold on to his truth. 
There's a positive volitional response where you exercise the volition to taste and see that the Lord is good and then live in light of that on an on, in an ongoing kind of a way where you're living life with him with your mind fixed on him. Your mind is stayed on thee because I trust in thee. So as I trust in you, I keep my mind fixed on you. And as my mind is fixed on you, your spirit illuminates, guides, directs, and gives me discernment to ascertain what is good and what is evil, what is beneficial and what is not. You could go so far as to say, in addition to helping you determine or discern between what is good and what is evil, what is good and what is better. That's the next stage of maturity, is even beyond discerning what's good and what's unhelpful or helpful or unhelpful, good or evil. It's what is good and what is best, better and best, however you want to say that, that God could help you with that. Now, in the immediate context, we're talking about these prophetic utterances which are tested and found to be valid. If they're found to be valid in this Thessalonian application, the idea is then cling to that because it's identified as coming from God. And if it's coming from God, then we ought not to, as it says in verse 20, despise that. We ought not to despise that. So that's the exact contextual application to the Thessalonian believers. But from our, for our sake, there's a much broader focus on any truth that originates with God. So if I determine that there's a source of God's truth, and we've said it already tonight, that's God's word, then that is the thing that I should be sticking firmly to, continuing to believe in, following after or letting guide me or be the guide in my life. And the idea is accept and retain what is determined to be God's truth in a practical, life-altering kind of a way. That's what it means to hold fast to what is good. Don't just determine what is true? That's, that's like halfway there. Now I know what's true. Then he says, don't just know or determine or test to determine or find out what is true. Hold fast to what is good then. That's the practical side of having some cognitive understanding of something. A test will give you information. It will reveal an outcome one way or the other. But now he moves on to the practical application. Let this change your life. Here, test and figure out what represents God's truth and then hold on to that because that should be and can be life-altering and life-changing. One way of translating this is take possession of what is found to be good. Hold fast, take possession of it. Appropriate that personally. It doesn't do you any good to just know that there's truths available in God's word. The, the point is that Paul's getting at in this verse 21 is, the, la, the last half of verse 21 here is, to let that change you. Let that make, have an impact on you on a practical, personal level. Take possession of it. Don't just know about it. Take possession of it. It'd be like saying, getting a letter that says you have won a new car it is located at this address. It is available for you to pick up anytime you see fit. It'd be like knowing and being aware of that truth now. It's a fixed reality. You were the winner. You were the recipient of that. It's available. But the question is, will you drive down there and take possession of that car 
Having a car that you've won that's available to you is of no good until you go take possession of it and start driving it around. Not a perfect illustration, but the same general kind of thing. Determine truth by testing all things. Determining truth, I should say, by testing all things, it's absolutely useless if it's not applied to life practically. Now, a few, a few years later, depends on how you date things, but when Paul wrote the, the letter to the Roman believers, he communicates the same exact exhortation. In the last part of Romans twelve nine, he says, he uses this phrasing though. Instead of hold fast what is good, he says cling to what is good. So you have hold fast and cling to. And both speak of this intentional and determined tenacity to retain the things that are beneficial in the context, God's truth. Do you have that kind of cling to what is true? Test all things. Once you've determined something is true and it's sourced in God himself, cling to that. Think of all of the things in life that we have this tendency to cling to irrationally. We cling to them because we place some kind of a high value on them. So we baby them. We care, we care for them. We try to preserve them as best we can. We're obsessed with them at times. And it's wood, hay, and stubble. It's, it's, it's things that will, will not last. They will not endure. That thing that you're clinging so tightly to, sometimes it's life itself. Sometimes it's past relationships. Sometimes it's finances. Sometimes it's physical inanimate objects that you cling to. God said, instead of clinging to those things, cling to me. And you cling to me by clinging to my word, to my truth, to my guidebook for your life. Cling to that instead. Well, then we move on. We see abstain from what's the alternative to clinging or holding fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So if it's determined to not be true, keep away from it. Abstain is defined as refrain from, put off, be distant from, but this is the one I like best, keep away from every form of evil. And the King James says every appearance of evil. Keep away from that. If it's found to be evil, if the discernment that God has given you through the power of his spirit and the revel- his revealed word, if it doesn't line up to his word and that allows you through your testing process, your cognitive process, your thinking and your prayers to determine this isn't true, then he says abstain, keep away from, distance yourself from that. And the immediate context again is this revelation uh, through prophecy, but just any revelation. If it's determined that it's not actually from God, then stay away from it. The general application is much broader and would have been taken that way even by the Thessalonian believers. The need to test everything and then either accept it or reject it on the basis of whether it is good or evil has general relevance to every aspect of Christian thought and behavior. As you're determining the source of your thinking, is it sourced in God's word? Is, are, is your thinking being influenced by him? Is that where you're getting those thoughts from? How about your your behavior, the decisions that you're acting on as a result of your thinking? Is that God's word? Is that God's truth that is informing or directing those actions? And if the answer is no, then the reminder and the encouragement here is distance yourself from that way of thinking or acting or, or living. Abstain from that. Keep away from that. Because it doesn't represent who God is, his character, and his plan and his purpose for your life. 
So hold yourself free from or avoid every kind of evil that tries to parade as genuine, genuinely led or directed by God's Spirit. Keep away from that kind of thing. And so Paul repeats that again in Romans 12, 9. The middle part of that verse, it says, Abhor what is evil before he says cling to what is good. Abhor means to hate, despise, or find repugnant. Now you think about things that you know are unhealthy in your life, things that you know are worldly, that are, they find their basis and they find their anchor in this world, in this life, in the temporal realm. And you're told to hate those things. Love not the world, neither the things of the world. Have a despise, despise those things. Distance yourself from those things. And isn't it true that though we know things will be unhelpful, unhealthy, that we are so attracted to them if we're not keeping our eyes on the Lord, that we're just like the flies that are being attracted to the zapper light. You know, we know better, but yet we keep getting sucked into that vortex. You know, it's like that, you're trying to vacuum, and there's that thing, you know, and you're, it's, it's like trying to fight against going into that vacuum. And you see it start to move a little bit. That's what we're susceptible to, being sucked right into that way of thinking. So what does it mean, or what does it involve? Well, it involves if you're going to abstain from or distance yourself from what is evil or even the appearance of evil, it involves running away from and distancing yourself from all of those kind of ungodly things. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, Timothy being a young pastor, he says, he says as a reminder to him in his last letter he writes before his death, chapter 2, verse 22, flee also youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteousness, faith, and love. And he says, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Do this collectively. Pursue what's right, faith, love, and peace, but don't just do it on your own. Do it with other people. Live life with other people. There's an application to even the church community there in a sense of that encouraging effect that living life with one another can have in encouragement to distance yourself from these things that are unhealthy and unhelpful to your Christian life. It also involves occupying your mind with something else. So if you want to avoid being sucked into that vortex of the things that are unhealthy, your mind has to be focused somewhere else. And Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on the things above. Now when you're doing that, when you're having that heavenly eternal mindset, you're not going to have your mind set on the things of the earth. Just like John says, do not love the world or the thinking or the things of the world. Don't love the thinking of the world. Don't love the things of the world. And that's only going to be possible when God is the one empowering and providing for that to be true in your life. You're not in your own strength, and I can't say this enough, you're not going to abstain from every form of evil or cling to what is good based on your own self-help plan. But by focusing your gaze on Him and His Spirit working inside of you, then that can be true as you test all things, that you're going to be able to cling to the things that are good and distance yourself from the things that are evil because your focus is on him and his spirit is working in you. That's why Galatians 5.16 says this, I say then, walk by means of the spirit. That's the idea there. Walk in the spirit. Walk by means of the spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And Paul says in Philippians 2.13, it's God who works in you both to will and to do 
for his good pleasure. Well, there was a lot tonight, three different more imperatives that we went through. God, through Paul, is encouraging us to heed these instructions. Remember this, this idea of, I beg you. So if you, if you take that and apply that to today's, tonight's instructions, it's I beg you to prayerfully and thoughtfully evaluate and consider what you hear. The standard to test against is God's revealed truth. Then through God's strength and power, hold fast and cling to what is good and reject and distance yourself from everything incompatible, incongruent, and inconsistent with his character and word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you for these exhortations. In First Thessalonians, as this has been an interesting study, pray that as we come to the home stretch here with one more to go, that you just allow us to continue, continue to be profited by evaluating and considering these truths. Pray that we wouldn't just have it go in one ear and out the other, that we would see that there is a need to take your advice to heart, knowing that you would never give it in a wasteful or unnecessary manner, but you'd only give us instruction that's actually necessary and useful to our spiritual well-being. Pray that we wouldn't take a posture of thinking we know best, but that we would walk in dependence on you, trusting that when you say something, it's something that will benefit us if we would just listen to you and trust you enough to let your spirit produce those outcomes in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.